it's awful. You know, we're struck with what do we do with these bills that are coming? Texas is trying to pass, they put on the books 15 anti-trans bills targeting kids. Anywhere from, they want to expand the definition of child abuse to include Mm. parents of trans kids that consent to giving them any sort of medical treatment, puberty blockers, hormones, that sort of thing. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. On today's show, we'll be discussing some of the Supreme Court decisions, which came down this week. College players who made the team, cheerleaders who didn't. Then we'll be sharing our conversation with Kristen, a mother of a trans child, about the anti-trans legislation that is cropping up in states around the country. And outside of politics, we're going to be checking in on our girl, Britney Spears. And there is a a better than normal chance that I will cry. I'm just going to be honest with you. Better than normal. Seems like a promise. Okay. Mm. Our Mm -hmm. summer series is coming up and we are so excited about it. We can't stop talking about it. This is a chance for us to dig deep on one topic and really spend time with it. This year, that topic is infrastructure. We're not doing the politics of passing an infrastructure bill. This is not going to be a bunch of talk about filibusters and bipartisan group meetings. This is about looking at the fire hydrant in your neighborhood and seeing the people and funds that allow it to be there. And we cannot wait to share it with you in July. We also want to make sure that you can go as deep with us as you'd like to by being part of our Pantsuit Politics premium memberships through Apple Podcast subscriptions or Patreon. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts today, in the episode notes, there's a link that says click here for our premium content. We want to make this as easy for you as possible. So tap that link and get signed up so that you don't miss out on a thing. Yes, there is a try free button right at the top. You'll get two weeks for free and you'll immediately get access to lots of bonus content, including... The nightly nuances this week on all the Supreme Court decisions that have come through the court this week. And we're going to talk about that up next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. 
free croissants in every box, and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, it's been a busy week at the high court. We've gotten decisions on the Affordable Care Act. We've gotten decisions on religious freedom. We covered both of those on Tuesday's episode. And today we wanted to talk about NCAA versus Alston et al., which is about college sports. And I am thrilled and I can't wait to talk about it with you. Well, I have been immersed in Supreme Court commentary, and I have to say this was the most fun case to read because when Justice Gorsuch gets excited about something, he really gets excited about it. And you can tell that he loved writing this opinion and giving us a history of what he describes as our long and complicated relationship concerning money and college sports. And so he begins with this really fun story about a train tycoon sponsoring a a boating competition between Harvard and Yale and buying free drinks and offering a free vacation for all that athletes. And just watching him walk through that history is really fun in this opinion. But ultimately, we have here a unanimous Supreme Court, not divided in outcome or reasoning. All nine justices signed on to the main opinion, saying loud and clear that the NCAA is not above antitrust law. And if they don't like the way antitrust law works, they should take that up with Congress. But right now, the NCAA is functioning as a monopsony, which is the fun corollary for monopoly when we're talking about just one buyer in a market instead of just one seller in that market. And that as a monopsony, the NCAA is artificially lowering the amount of compensation that these players would otherwise get in a truly competitive market. And they're unlawfully restraining competition among colleges and universities for that talent. And just to be clear, this wasn't the Supreme Court saying, college athletes, you deserve to get paid. It was the Supreme Court saying that the NCAA could not restrict additional educational benefits. And that can mean a lot of things. And because it can mean a lot of things, that's why the NCAA was restricting it in the first place, right? You can make up for a lot in computers and study abroad and postgraduate scholarships and all kinds of, quote unquote, educational benefits that will sweeten the pot and make it worthwhile for a player to come to your school. And the NCAA knew that. And because they have a lot built on very precarious ground called student-athletes, they were trying to protect that at all costs, and restricting these educational benefits was one of them. 
Well, and the court was only considering the education-related benefits side because that's all that was in front of it. The student-athletes who sued the NCAA challenged all manner of compensation in the lower courts, but they did not pursue on appeal compensation unrelated to education. So the Supreme Court really didn't have an opportunity to weigh in on just straight up giving money to these students or other opportunities. They were just talking about those education-related benefits, and they said, look, even if we all accepted that preserving amateurism was a noble, legitimate goal that the NCAA is actually, like, living up to, the NCAA hasn't been very clear on what amateurism means or requires for its duration. But even if we all accepted that, that that's really important that the NCAA is doing it, it cannot use education-related restrictions to further that goal. It did leave a lot of leeway, though, for the NCAA to regulate education-related compensation. For example, the NCAA said, well, if if you can give in-kind educational benefits, aren't we going to see colleges giving players cars to drive to class? And Justice Gorsuch says, well, maybe, but like write a definition around that. Have a no Lamborghini rule if you need one. You have <laughs> lots of latitude here, but you can't just put these blanket restrictions in place. And so it'll be interesting to see how the NCAA responds. This was a weird case for me, Sarah, because you know how I feel about Justice Kavanaugh and his jurisprudence. I really found myself agreeing with his concurrence. So Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately hmm. by himself to say, We didn't consider compensation unrelated to education today, but if we had, I think the NCAA would be in some trouble. And I think people ought to pursue those cases against the NCAA. And he wrote this really impassioned, strong opinion saying, nowhere else would we allow this. In every other industry, if we treated the people who work in that industry the way that we treat these players, no one would stand for it. He says, for example... All the restaurants in a region cannot come together to cut cooks' wages on the theory that customers prefer to eat food from low-paid cooks. Law firms cannot conspire Mm -hmm. to cabin lawyers' salaries in the name of providing legal services out of a love of the law. Hospitals cannot agree to cap nurses' incomes in order to create a purer form of helping the sick. Like, I just think he's right about this, and that is not a feeling I have about Justice Kavanaugh very often, so I want to acknowledge it. Yes, I passionately agree with him, which, again, is not a feeling I'm used to. But, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I've been on this tip way before it was cool, way back in the day when my husband was fully invested in NCAA college football and college basketball. Like, seriously, 20 years ago, when I lived in Lexington, Kentucky, the home of the University of Kentucky and its basketball team, I thought, this is bullshit. Excuse my language, which we're going to get to in the next case. It's ridiculous to stand up and say, oh, the purity of the sport when the college coaches, the colleges themselves, the television stations and God knows who else are making millions and millions of dollars on the backs of these players. It is embarrassing to all of us that it took us this long to get here. Honestly, like, give me a break. It's just, to me, look, I'm not a sports person, and I'm an Enneagram one. And that combination (laughs) does not make me popular at parties because it just feels like, how could we not have seen this? 
How could we not have seen that this is exploitive and has been for decades? Like, you know, I feel like we get blinded by sports and we create these stories in our heads that it just it serves this higher purpose. And look, I, I think it does to a certain extent. I think that sports, both college and otherwise, bring people together and bring people a lot of joy. They give people enormous opportunities. I'm not blind. I can see all that. I just think that often we create these myths in our head that it's all good and no bad. And the idea that like money is going to taint it for the players when everyone else is profiting is truly the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Part of how I view this as just a fan of college basketball is that we need to build an incentive structure for people to finish their education. As you think about the the toll on players' bodies that competitive sports takes, it is not good that we have built a system, and you see this quite clearly at the University of Kentucky, and I love that program. We have built a system that incentivizes them to come play a year and then go to the NBA draft where they can make money. And it would be so much better, I think, for everybody to have programs where you are being paid your worth to play in those programs as you finish your education so that if something happens to your body down the line, you have something to fall back on or you have a place to go that makes sense for you. We know that lots of these players go get into the NBA where they're making tons of money immediately. And this is a risk at the collegiate level, too. But if you've got one year of college, you go make a ton of money, you blow it and something happens to you. Mm -hmm. That is just a tragic story that we see play out too many times. And so I get that we have this really fun fiction about this being amateur versus professional, but it's just clearly not. And the programs aren't being built that way anymore. There's a huge racial component to this that cannot be ignored. And what we're doing is just fundamentally unfair. And so I I was glad to see the court take this on. I think it laid the groundwork for other decisions that are going to be hard on sports. I think Major League Baseball is in trouble. There's an aside in this opinion where the court really questions its precedent, where it sort of carved out an exception for Major League Baseball. They called it an aberration. And I think if that Mm. hits the court again, we're going to see a different result. But a lot of these things just need to be shaken up as everything else is in our world. I don't think sports should be insulated from learning what we can learn and doing better by each other. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I have a cousin who is a professional baseball player. And I remember when we met up with him one time when he was in the minor leagues, he said, I did the math and I'm making $2 an hour. But what else? What other choice did he have to get into the major leagues? Right. Yeah. There's a great documentary called Broke from ESPN's 30 for 30 about the the financial impact of professional sports on its players and what happens. And let me tell you what I would do now that schools can offer educational benefits. And yes, there is going to be a, a huge financial component to those educational benefits. But here's what I would do if I was at a top tier school fighting for top tier athletes, I would create a professional athletic major. Mm -hmm. And I would create the most amazing program at my college in the country on the planet. You come to my school, you play for my team, you get classes on sports agents. You get the best former athletes coming and teaching you classes on how to take care of your body, how to take care of your mental health, how to take care of your finances. I'm not going to just give you a college education. I'm going to give you an education on the career you want to pursue, which is professional sports. Fine. 
that's fine. We want that for you too, but we want you to do it and succeed. And so what we have here at UK or what we have here at Duke, God help me for saying those two together, is that we will train you. We will train you to take that career and make the absolute best of it. And that's the educational benefit we offer you here. And things like how do you hire people you can trust to help you financially? How do you set up a foundation to do philanthropy work? How do you do like media training? All kinds of things. I think that's a fantastic idea. Maybe a class called Don't Start a Damn Restaurant. That would be a good one. I learned that and broke. Don't do that either. That's not where you want to invest your money. So to me, the NCAA case was the most fun decision from the Supreme Court in this term. You're going to take a turn now? We're going to take a turn (laughs) now. To the next case? (laughs) I have rolled my eyes since this hit the court's docket. And I read the decisions last night and felt like I was worse off for it. We're going to talk about Mahoney Area School District versus BL. This is the case where we have a cheerleader who, as Justice Breyer describes it, did not handle with grace her rejection (laughs) from the varsity cheerleading squad and her placement once again on the JV squad and who made a Snapchat saying F everything. And well, she used eight words and four of them were the F word. Right. She had feelings. And also, 14-year-olds are not exactly known for their graceful handling of literally anything. But yes. And she followed it with her second slide explaining that she was very upset that she and someone else were going to be on the JV team. And so our 82-year-old Supreme Court Justice Breyer is writing about Snapchat. I have to just, I can't even imagine what the conversations at the court were like. This case is at the Supreme Court because adults behaved disproportionately in a scenario where a teenage girl was upset. And then as many things do, it took on a life of its own where the concern became less about this one girl and her cheerleading spot and more about what do schools do in this era to regulate student speech that takes place off campus. And Justice Breyer begins the opinion by telling us Off campus, I don't even know what that means, especially post-COVID. So many people Mm -hmm. are doing remote learning. Social media is important for school activities in many cases. So defining off campus is really hard. And he says, we're not really going to do that today. In the lower courts, the cheerleader won because the lower courts said Essentially, schools just can't regulate student speech off campus. And the Supreme Court took this case, I think, to say, well, yeah, they can sometimes, but this is too far. And they told us, we're not going to give you the prescription today. We don't have a formula for when they can and when they can't. But this one, there is too tenuous a connection. This was not disruptive to school functions. And so the court decided that the school wrongly kicked her off the team, which doesn't help her because she's long since graduated. She doesn't even go there now. These cases take so long. But what we did get for schools is not a lot of clarity, but some, that there are times when they can regulate student speech off campus. This just wasn't one of them. Well, here's the thing. Yes, the proportional response should have been, Brandy, honey, I'm your cheerleading coach. I bring you in. I teach you a really important lesson about screenshots and that even if it disappears on Snapchat, other people take pictures and other people want to get you in trouble and you need to remember that. And then I send her on her happy way. Instead, they kicked her off the JV squad too. And can I add, I mean, in addition to that lesson about social media, I think you also say, Brandy, honey, we want you to be on this team. I know you're disappointed, but we want you here. We want you to be successful. Can we move on? Can we get over it? Can we knock this off and move on and get to it? Because 
to me, this whole case is a whole bunch of adults acted like they've never worked with high school students before. I mean, if you are clutching your pearls about the F word as a high school teacher, you are living a very different reality than all the high school teachers I know. What bugs me about the court is, yes, I understand that they gave little additional clarity about courts can regulate speech off campus, which of course they can. I mean, and I understand why they wanted to provide that clarification for exactly what you said. What does that mean for bullying? In fact, I think when they when we've talked about this case before and we made that point, like with cyberbullying, which even sounds like a dated word to me kind of a little Mm -hmm. bit. But there's all this reality, not and that was before COVID, (laughs) not to mention after COVID when there's going to be even more virtual schooling. Not every school district is going to just say we're not doing that anymore. They're going to keep that option for kids. And so. You know, is that off campus? You know, like, I think that there's all these complicated questions. And what I don't understand is providing the tiniest amount of clarity, which as the wife of a school board attorney seems like feels a little bit like no clarity at all. Why take the case if you're not going to start chipping away at that standard? That's what I didn't understand. Like, why do this? Why go to all this trouble, bring Brandy all the way in? Just to say, well, we need a standard, but not today. I feel like they've been doing that a lot. Yeah, we we need something, but not now. Well, when, guys? What you doing? What else do you got to do? Isn't this your only job? Well, it seems to me that they take these cases and they both want to establish greater standards and more clarity, but also want to protect the institution. And so mm-hmm. if you can get eight justices signed on to a single opinion by making it pretty narrow and ambiguous, I think the courts decided that's more important than laying down a standard, especially if laying down that standard would involve, you know, three justices here and three there. So I, I get why they land on these narrow rulings. And I think that's probably appropriate. You have a dissent here from Justice Thomas that doesn't seem to even substantively disagree with the outcome as much as be annoyed by exactly what we're talking about here, that there's not really a principled foundation. This decision reads almost like some of the court's jurisprudence in the pornography space where they're like, we just know it when we see it. And I think in this case, they said, we just know when we see it that it's too tenuous to regulate this kind of social media speech. And also, impractical. If courts are monitoring what students say on social media about school, what else are they going to do? This is so silly, and that's my beef with this case. There are good cases out there to consider students and speech and school restrictions. I just think this one is bananas. Yeah, and I think when you look at this new approach of the Roberts Court, which in many ways I understand and I can empathize with in even respect. When you look at these two cases, though, you see the limitations of this particular doctrine, even on the health of the institution. And what I mean by that is the NCAA case was great. That's what the Supreme Court should do, right? When there is cultural change and there's a powerful player using the law to prevent that change, to perpetuate unfairness, then the Supreme Court says, comes in and says, nope, we're not going to have your back. This is up to you. And that's a really good case. That's a really good exercise of the court's power, I think. I think that there are limitations to these cases, like the cheerleader case. And to me, it's not that you find a narrow ruling. You don't take the damn case to begin with. You know, if I could get John Roberts in a room, I would say there is damage to the institution when you keep taking minor ambiguous rulings, too, because then people start to say, well, why are you there? 
You're not actually helping. You're not providing any clarity. That damages the institution in a similar way. Especially a case like this, it is bad that the court took an angry cheerleader case. Reading the facts of this case in Supreme Court language is embarrassing. I think about the NCAA case and how Justice Gorsuch makes a little bit of this point that you're making, Sarah, near the end. He writes a paragraph saying, I know people are going to be upset about this from every angle because we did not resolve everything that needs to be resolved here. But the court cannot resolve the cultural debate about amateur sports versus professional sports. The court cannot do that. All we can do is look at antitrust law as it's written today and apply it. And that's what we did. And I think he's right. And I think the court did that and did it correctly. And then I think Kavanaugh loves to just push things a little bit further and say, here's how I might decide a future case. That seems to be his favorite thing to do. I just happen to agree with him this time. Yeah, stop doing that, too. That's not helpful either. But you know what? That Roberts Doctrine opens up the avenue for that. If you're constantly taking terrible, teeny, tiny, narrow cases, then of course they're going to write concurring opinions being like, well, you know what I'd really like to do is this, Mm -hmm. because we don't have any space to do anything because we're all trying to get to eight or nine justices. So let me just fantasize. I mean, Kagan did that with some of the gerrymandering cases. And that's what happens when you're trying to pave this teeny, tiny road one brick at a time. People who became Supreme Court justices because they want to do big things are going to spout off from time to time. It's not surprising. I would, too. It's not surprising. And it's all a result, in my opinion, of the politicization of the nomination process. And politicization is probably the wrong word of treating it in such crass partisan terms. When I think when Mitch McConnell particularly, it was bad before, but the denial of the Garland hearing to me set the court on this path where Justice Roberts feels so squeezed to try to Mm -hmm. keep the court looking legitimate and above the fray. And it got worse and worse and worse from there on. I'm glad that the Biden administration is studying the issue. I know they don't really want to touch this, and I understand why, too. But someone needs to touch it because this is a mess, and it's a pretty unsustainable mess. And I say that as someone who loves the court. I love reading these opinions. Not Alito's, okay, but everybody else's. I love (laughs) reading those opinions. And I'm sad about where the court is, even as I think we've had some decent decisions coming out of it lately. Well, and let me say this. We tackled this in detail on our spicy nightly nuance last night. But this is why Justice Breyer should retire. Let me say that as plainly as I can. Because the strain on the institution of another politicized nomination, should it happen after the midterms, if Republicans control the Senate, where Mitch McConnell's already said, well, we just wouldn't put through a nominee. So you'd have two years without a nominee. Then it would be on the battle during the presidential race. Like, don't do that to the court. It can't take it. It truly cannot take it at this point. Give the court a break. Make this one easy. You should retire. I love you so much, but you should retire. Okay, sorry. I just needed to get that off my chest. All right, we're going to wrap up our Supreme Court coverage. And next, we're going to share our interview with Kristen just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, 
Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Today, we're going to share portions of our conversation with Kristen, and we'll tell you more about Kristen in just a second. But first, here's why we talked to her and why we're sharing this discussion. As many of you know, state legislatures in their last sessions had bills cropping up about transgender students, transgender athletes, medical care for transgender children. I know many of you have been on the front lines of fighting against those bills. Some of them passed. Fortunately, in Texas, where Kristen lives, those bills died uh, with the legislative session. They did not make it across the finish line. They are bound to come up again, absent some real changes in the way that we talk about these issues. 
We got an email this week from a listener who was so sincerely saying, I recognize that I am a white woman with uh, wealth available to me who's married to a man, that most of the circumstances of my life create so much privilege, and I don't really know how to be an ally to communities that need me. And I think this conversation with Kristen gives us one place where we can stand up and be kinder to our neighbors. I hope it also is a place where those of you who are wrestling with similar issues in your own families can find some language to use that's helpful. So Kristen reached out to us. She's a listener of the podcast. She is the mother of a transgender child. She is a Texan. So much of her biography resembles many of the emails that we get every single week. And so we're really excited to share some of this discussion with you. First, let's let Kristen introduce herself in her own words. My husband and I uh, had got married in 2008, and we both went to Baylor University, but we did not meet at Baylor. We met after at a young adult church event. Uh, We were in the Methodist church at the time and got married just as one does (laughs) and started a family. We had Olivia, who is nine now, was assigned female at birth and in 2012. And life was normal for the first two and a half years. We we were just living our life. We are in Texas, just hanging out, going to work, being a family. And then we decided to have try again and have another child. And, and I got pregnant very easily. And Amelia was born in 2015. So they're about three, almost three years apart to the day, actually. Their birthdays are in November. And um, the summer before Olivia turned three, I was, I was really pregnant. And we started noticing that Olivia would say, "Mommy, I'm a boy and I'm not a girl." And I and I can I can tell you exactly the fr- the very first time that I heard him say that. I was taking him to preschool, and uh, I was in the car thinking about what I needed to do to get ready for the baby. And so Olivia was not three yet, so about two years and nine months at this point. And we were going over the rain, the railroad tracks, and I heard, Mommy, I'm a boy. And I said, what? <laughs> I said, no, you're not. You're a girl. I was like, you're a girl, just like Mommy. And no, Mommy, I'm a boy. And then um, I didn't think much of it because it was, you know, didn't seem, it seemed like that's right when they were starting to talk about body parts and things like that in preschool. So, you know, we went on with life. We were noticing that Olivia was saying it a little bit more and a little bit more. Mm. And so then right before Amelia was born, I did talk to a friend that I know. So I'm my background is I am a physical therapist, but I also have a master's in social work. So something was kind of triggered in my brain a little bit like mm, this might what's going on here? You know, I knew enough to know that this was not typical, I should say. And so I talked to my friend right before I had my second child. And she said, well, you know, like, just watch it. You know, I don't really, she, I think at the time she knew what was going on probably, but maybe I was about to have a baby, didn't want to like mention anything. But she said, well, let's just, 
see what happens. And and Olivia has never been dressing in dresses, nothing like that. Like there was a red t-shirt that he wore every day for two weeks. Like I could not get him to take off the red t-shirt. And, but I was, you know, whatever, it's just clothes. It didn't matter to me. So after Amelia was born, two days later, I got home from the hospital. Everything was fine with the birth, no problems. And my mom was here helping and I was putting the baby down and my mom came in and said, I think you need to sit down. And I said, okay. And she's, and my mom said, Olivia has been telling me 10 times that she was, that he's a boy. And I said, okay. And it escalated from there. So at the time we were like, I mean, I just had a baby. Is he trying to differentiate himself from the baby? Did we prepare him enough for the baby? And so I started doing research mode right after I had the baby. I mean, our second. I went into like social work research mode. What does this mean? This was 2015. So there wasn't a whole lot of information out there. There was, there was starting to be, but it was, it was nothing like it is now. And um, I came across some websites and some studies that said that like he could be transgender, but we, you know, we, he might not be, you know, there at the time there was all these studies that said 80% of kids who say this as a young children grow out of it or not grow out of it, Mm. but you know, in alignment with their birth sex at puberty. And so, but those studies are absolutely false. They're debunked. They had included gender non-conforming kids in the studies and that those studies are not credible at all. Like, and that's what the, unfortunately, what's happening now is that's what the right wing is trying to pull in is these studies that are just absolutely false. And I can get into that later because they changed the definition of what the criteria for gender dysphoria and how, how they diagnose someone as transgender. We can talk about that later. But so I did all the research. I talked to psychologists. I talked to therapist, you know, wanting, wanting, not knowing what to do. Do I correct my child? Do I not correct my child? Do I, what, what do we do? Because I knew enough that how we handled that was going to matter right away. Mm. How we handle that is going to matter. And so actually the, there was one psychologist that a friend talked to me, talked to me about, which what that said the most, I think sound advice was, well, Some kids know that young. Some kids just know. And, but if it's not, it doesn't sound like it's an emergency. There's, you know, no self-harm or anything. It sounds like you do, there's a lot of stress just having a baby. So, you know, see what happens. And that was, actually, that kind of put me at peace because I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, we don't need to do anything. Now, and I would say that this is just our story. Mm -hmm. There are, every transgender family has a different story. I will say that the kids that know really young and and the parents are listening and paying attention to it, they have similar trajectories, meaning the little boys will say, I want to cut my penis off. The little girls, like a signed female at birth will say, when is my penis going to grow? You know, like those Mm. sorts of, of talk happens in addition to just absolutely affirming this is who I am. So we have just journeyed with Olivia. Olivia does not want to change his name. We've talked to him about it. And we feel like 
that is just because he's felt comfortable. Fortunately, we live in a blue part of Texas, and it hasn't been easy, but we have been able to carve out our own support network and our own support system. We did change churches because I know that God loves my child. God made my child. I did not want my child to hear from the pulpit anything different than God's love. So we joined the Episcopal Church a few years ago, and that has been an amazing experience for us. We did a lot of church hopping, trying to find a church that was supportive. And in fact, you know, I think the cool story there is that I was taught, it took a year. Like we weren't going to put our kids in Sunday school for A, because we don't know how they're going to treat my child. And B, like I didn't, we just wanted to, before we introduced a new church or something, we just wanted to uh, check it out first. And so I was tired. I had been the one church hopping and I was just really tired. All of the questions at the end, did you just move here? All of that. And finally Mm. I was in this, we, uh, my husband and I were in this beautiful sanctuary and I, the, the sweet Dean walked up and said, well, why are you here? I'm here to welcome you. And I, and I just broke down and I said, this is why we're here. I have a transgender child. What does your church can offer us? Are we safe here? And she looked me in the eye with tears in her eyes, and she said, you have a home here. Oh. And that was it. You know, that's that's the church that we've joined. Um, our school has been supportive. We've had, we have lost friends. And, and I, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. It's just a hard, having to change, I think, your whole life and wanting people to be supportive, but not knowing if they will be or can be. As far as Olivia is concerned, I think one thing that people don't understand about this is that there's a lot of mental, like, anguish that they go through. And Mm. the reason that some kids do a social transition really, really early is because they are going to start self-harming, meaning trying to cut off body parts. Anger is a big theme for these kids. If they're not supported, there's a lot of anger. And we saw that even with Olivia and how we have been supportive of him. Not once has Olivia ever said, I'm a girl. Not one time. So Sarah, Kristen really generously shared some background about Olivia's story. And as we were talking with her, you kept referencing Far From the Tree, a book that you cite often that's sitting on my nightstand right now. I'm going to dig into it in July. And I wondered if you could share again with the audience some of what you learned from that book about how we think about transgender children. Yes, regular listeners of the show are used to me mentioning Andrew Solomon's Far From the Tree. I finished reading it this year. It's 800 pages long. Listen, I've been reading it for a while. But the last chapter is on transgender because he's really exploring what happens when a child has an identity separate from their parents. He calls them horizontal identities. What happens when your child has this fundamental thing about them that is different? And he starts to talk about transgender, and he opens the chapter, and I love this quote. He says, Western culture likes binaries. Life feels less frightening when we can separate good and evil into tidy heaps, when we split off the mind from the body, when men are masculine and women are feminine. Threats to gender are threats to the social order. If rules are not maintained, everything seems to be up for grabs, and Joan of Arc must go to the stake. And I think that is so key. It feels like we are just talking about kids, 
But to the people who are perpetuating these laws and fighting so hard, they perceive it as this like threat to social order, this threat to everything because gender props up everything. And why I think it's so incredibly valuable to hear from people like Kristen, to hear her very personal story, to hear her family story, to hear about her actual child, is to remind ourselves and to remember that's the the paradox, that's the struggle, that's the difficulty of these issues is that both things are true, right? We have these people who feel like everything is, the world is crumbling underneath them, and it's about actual kids, just kids, individual kids wanting to live their lives and thrive and flourish as themselves. And parents struggling and working so hard and doing everything they can to make that possible. I listened to several podcasts from The Bulwark, a group of former Republican strategists who have fully embraced Democrats running for office, given the big lie and the Trump presidency. And something that comes up a lot when they discuss these transgender discrimination bills. That's really what they are, right? They're they're discriminatory uh-huh. bills. They say, you know, for every transgender person in the country, like 50,000 words has been written in some conservative publication about this topic, that this yep. is a small percentage of the population, a vulnerable percentage of the population that is being exploited. And Kristen tells us about that here. One percent of the population is transgender. And I think a lot of times people have a hard time recognizing that transgender adults were transgender children. And they Mm -hmm. absolutely were. And if you talk to trans adults, they will say, man, I wish I had the I wish I had an affirming family when I was growing up. I wish there was language to talk about this. I wish I had the help that I need because the suicide rates are off the charts. So. My child, trans boy, has a 50% chance of attempting suicide. Mm. 50% chance. That number decreases dramatically if there's an affirming family. It doesn't go, it doesn't completely go away. But there was a study recently that kids between the ages of 12 and 17 who were affirmed because trans boys have a 50% chance of attempting suicide. Trans girls, I think it's 33%. Non-binary, it's 22%. But the average is 42 So that you'll hear that number a lot. But if, if there's an affirming family, it goes down to almost normal. And normal mm. or typical for suicide attempt in kids is 4%. And they still have too a, high. Still but too yes. high. But yeah. You go from 50% to 4% with an affirming family. And so, I mean, you can't tell me that I'm not going to move heaven and earth for my child not to to set my child up to not be that 50%, right? And there's this misnomer that that there's like kids change their mind. And that's just, Mm. the, the research just does not bear that out. There was a study recently of 25,000 transgender people and 13% detransitioned. And what that meant, that means is that they went back to their other gender. But if you talk to them about the reasons that they did that, it was my kids might be taken away. I couldn't get insurance. I couldn't get a job. The discrimination wow. was too much. So Sarah, as we think about how to be allies to answer our listeners' question that was posed so sincerely that it really warmed my heart, 
We're going to let Kristen answer that in her own words. But something that I think about is just being willing in your community, in your circles, to be the person who can calm those folks who see this as a threat mm-hmm. to the social order, to be the person who can say, what are we really talking about here? What's really going on? Not shame, not shut down, because that just fuels it. And not because we're making space for discrimination or ignorance, but because in an effort to protect these kids, we don't want to fuel the fire. I don't want that, right? I want to make space. I want to listen. I want to de-escalate as much as I can because this isn't just a cultural battle, although it is that. It is impactful on the everyday lives of real children. And so as best as I can, especially as an ally, to de-escalate that, to find spaces where people can exercise some of those cultural fears with me and not with their legislator or their school board or actual families with transgender children. And I think it makes me a better parent to consider these issues. I'm always asking, you know, how do I develop the most loving children I can? And I think developing the most loving children I can means opening conversations with my kids, with the parents of kids that my kids spend time with, with our family members about things like sports and about the role that sports play in our lives and how seriously we take them and how we prioritize the outcomes in sports versus the way that we love other people. I think talking about the decisions people get to make with their healthcare providers, the decisions people make about their names and their clothing and what they ask to be called. I mean, these all seem like places to me where we can really work on how do we develop the most love in each other that we're capable of. And here's Kristen's call to action for us. We're a small group. We need allies that are willing to speak up. And I had a friend recently that said, how can I, how can I support you? How can I be, you know, a good ally in your life? And I said, teach your kids about kids like mine. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how you can be a good mom to my kid is to, to make it safer for my child to go to school, make it safer for them. You know, if there's someone picking on my kid, like talk to them about being transgender and it's it's it there's been transgender people since there have been people Mm -hmm. it is not a new it is not a new thing and what's so heartbreaking for me in this is that science has figured out how to help this vulnerable population because the trans adults were trans kids and i know that that's a hard thing to think about it challenges all of the gender norms that we that we know about in the west it challenges all of that but we've we've figured out how to help this population to go on to happy healthy lives and they're trying to take that away trans kids just want to live their lives they do they don't want the idea that there's some that they're trying to be predatorial or they're like mm-hmm. the trans kids just want to fit in Mm-hmm. They want to play with their friends. They are, I, I don't know how to say it any other way. They are just not a threat to other kids. They yeah. like, and they want to be loved and cherished for who they are, just like everyone else. And yeah. I think what's so heartbreaking is that we, this, the stats on their mental health 
that's not up for debate. We're so honored that Kristen trusted us to come and share her story, her family story, her child's story. We thought it was essential and important to share that story with all of you. And we thought it was particularly appropriate during Pride Month to think about these things in a complex way, in a nuanced way, and with someone who is actually experiencing them. Next up, we're going to share what's on our mind outside politics. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
Beth, have you read Britney Spears' court statement? I read it this morning, and I was really surprised by how much it impacted me, honestly. I've cared about this, as we've talked about before, since I saw the documentary. I'm exactly the right age to care about it. Britney Spears has been a a looming figure in my life, you know, since I was a, a middle schooler, I suppose. And when I read this statement, I could not shake that this is not outside of politics at all. This is not about Britney Spears mm-hmm. at all, that she is speaking into a dynamic that is really pervasive in the United States. And I think what was so brave about her telling the court, what is happening to me is wrong. What is happening to me is unacceptable. The state is allowing people to take advantage of me, to create trauma for me every single day. And if that can happen to Britney Spears, you know that it's happening to other people. Yeah, I was heartbroken reading the entire thing. I gasped. I cried. Even as somebody who assumed the worst of this conservatorship, assumed the worst of what her ha- what her father and the, the people surrounding him and profiting off her work were doing. I had already assumed the worst. But hearing it from her was just heartbreaking. Britney Spears is our age. She is also turning 40 this year. And so it is just so hard to think about everything that she's been through and to track her life alongside mine. And I think about the last 13 years of my life, and I think about how much I've learned and how much I've grown, how much I've been allowed to travel and have children and explore new career paths how much time I've spent with family and friends laughing, how much struggle and burden I've had and how I've learned to deal with that and depend on other people. And the fact that this woman has been robbed of that is so heartbreaking to me, especially because she's given so much to so many people. And I know it's easy to be flippant about famous people and artists, but it's just true. She wasn't just out there shaking her ass. She was making people feel seen. Like, look, if you're a Peloton writer, I know you've done Cody Rigsby's Britney Spears ride. And to hear him talk about watching her and seeing her and feeling seen and feeling like there was a life out there for him as a gay kid, that stuff matters. People heard her music. People watched her performances. They brought them joy. They brought them awareness. They brought them just happiness. And she did all that enormous personal sacrifice at an incredibly young age. And I'm not saying she was like like a soldier, like she knew what she was standing, she was signing up for and did it willingly knowing she was going to bring joy to other people. But the sacrifices were made just the same. And at this point in her life, like when she said, I just want, I've been working since I was a kid. I just want some time off. I just want years to do what I want to do. I've made so many people so much money. I deserve this. And it just, my heart broke for her. My heart totally and completely breaks for her. And I know that you cannot tell everything about a situation from one statement. As I read her statement and reading it, of course, is different from hearing it as well. There are things in it where you can tell, you can hear the trauma, you can tell that there has been real arrested development, that there has Mm -hmm. been a real constriction around what she's been exposed to and what she's been able to learn and practice. But she didn't sound very different from a lot of people walking around doing exactly what they want to all day, every day, 
you know, she sounded coherent. She sounded like someone who was really trying to understand what was happening. She sounded like someone who was, as 90% of people are, probably more than that, at a serious imbalance of power in the courtroom, right? That she has a serious lack of knowledge compared to the judge she was speaking with. And she was still assertive and like, powerfully speaking into what she's entitled to as a human being. And that really moved me to thinking about how many people walk into those totally intimidating environments where it almost feels like a different language is spoken than yours. And sometimes a different language is being spoken than yours. And this person has so much power over you. And for her to just so earnestly say to this judge, I need you to know this. I felt like you didn't hear me the last time we did this. And I came back to try again. That is a beautiful thing. And I really hope the court hears her on that. I think we do this all the time. We assume that being an elite or having social status in one particular area translates across all areas. We assume that because someone is a rich, successful business person that they are smart and worked hard and deserve it. And we assume because somebody is a celebrity that they are also an intellectual elite, which is often not the case. When exactly would Britney Spears have gone to college? She was too busy working her ass off, entertaining all of us for a decade. So it's just, I felt that reaction to myself. I know a lot of people had it. You want her to stand up and make the most articulate case humanly possible, never repeat herself. And it's like, that's not the kind of status she procured for herself. The status she even procured for herself wasn't enough to keep her out of basically bondage for 13 years. So like, it just, I think we do this a lot. We assume because someone is beautiful, they're smart. We because be, assume because someone is smart, they're well-educated. We be, assume because someone is well-educated, they are deserving. And none of those things are inherently linked. And, you know, the other thing I think is really key when I was listening to her, this is hard, but I think it's a conversation we need to have. I was struck by how this conservatorship began with a mental health crisis. And how the story in this country that we say, that we tell ourselves is true, right? That we don't take mental health seriously enough, that we allow crises to perpetuate, that mental health experts are always there and always help. And I think what you see from Britney Spears is sometimes mental health expertise is used to control people and not necessarily like it's not this one size fits all magic wand. We just get people mental health care and everything is solved. And like I talk like that. I say that all the time. Well, you just need therapy as if that's going to fix everything, as if that's a magical solution. I mean, she it sounds like she has been perpetually in therapy. And also we use therapy as one word to include a lot of things which is going to sweep up terrible therapy, abusive therapy, great therapy, comprehensive therapy, holistic therapy, right? Like there's a whole thing, lots wrapped up in that word. There's a lots ra- lot wrapped up in mental health, those two words. But I was struck by how we all, you know, this whole time I was telling myself, God, she just needs really good therapy. And this whole time she's been in therapy and she's like, I don't, I want out of this and I shouldn't have to go to therapy to get out of it. And I thought that was really interesting too. And I think she's right. It broke my heart to hear how abusive therapy has been for her. And it made me think about how, like, fundamentally, if I think about what kind of country do I want to live in, 
I want to live in one where we truly prioritize freedom, freedom for people, even if they are struggling with a mental health issue. There is a way to help people and come alongside them and value their independence. I worry about this. Honestly, I even worry about it when people who I believe to be people of good faith are talking about big mental health packages. I worry about it when we talk about mental health and guns. I worry that ultimately what we're talking about is taking rights away from people who are struggling through a time that could be around the door for any of us, right? It's mental health is an everybody all the time issue. And it scares me. I, I want to prioritize freedom of people who've committed crimes because I believe there is a, a better way to work through criminality than through incarceration. And for our conservatorship system to allow someone to be micromanaged to the level of even in her area of clear expertise, she's having Mm -hmm. people threaten her over wanting to change a dance move. Like, what are we even doing? The state is sanctioning that. We need to take a giant step back and get to fundamentals on what are we trying to do here and why. And freedom as it relates to fame, which I am just not sure can coexist. The reason I am invested in Britney Spears is because this is something I think about a lot. We talked about this on the show with Whitney Houston, who I adored. We talked about this on the show with Michael Jackson and his predatory behavior and the effects of fame. And it's certainly something the state can make worse, but it's not something the state or the law can fix. And that's just something I think that we have to continue to explore as a culture. When we love someone's art, when we make someone famous, at what cost does that come to the individual? And the more I see people like Britney Spears, I thought her referencing Paris Hilton's story was so interesting. And the more we see this fallout in their individual lives, she is a real person. She starts to not feel real because we see her so much, but she is a real person. And I just, I wonder if it's ever worth it. We believe that fame is freedom. And so when famous people say, I'm suffering, my freedom is restricted, we blow it off. But I really think it's the opposite. I don't think fame is freedom. I think fame and money and influence and all that comes with it is often its own type of prison. Phew. Okay. So that was a lot. I'm going to keep Brittany in our thoughts and prayers and follow very closely along with that judge's decision. Thank you as always, for joining us for an ever-wide-ranging array of topics here on Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Hansley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Danny Osmond. The Pensions! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Karen True. Amy Whited. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller.
To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.